Welcome to the Newsbusters podcast with your host, executive editor of Newsbusters, Tim Graham. Hello and welcome to a little look at what's going on in Minnesota since I went to college at Bemidji State, the college in the pines. And Mrs. Graham grew up in the southern burbs in the Twin Cities in Apple Valley. Our topic today is Ilhan Omar and the House Republicans voting to remove her from the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I thought it was funny that the Omar removal story was nowhere to be found at the Minneapolis Star Tribune website on Friday. We used to be able to get the Minneapolis Star Tribune in Bemidji if you had your quarters. The St. Paul Pioneer Press had nothing unless you were looking at the very top where they called it Our Picks, where they just had a link with the words Ilhan Omar ousted. Both papers just had reports from the AP because, you know, newspapers. Why, Why do they have to cover the local people in Congress? Joining us today, Benjamin Weingarten, deputy editor at Real Clear Investigations. He's a senior contributor to The Federalist. And most importantly for today, author of the book American Ingrate, Ilhan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party. Ben, welcome. Tim, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Yes. So let's start with yesterday. You know, our DNC media sort of suggested this was a revenge attack. I don't think they characterized the original attack as an attack when they removed Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar from all committees, not just a specific committee. Uh, For her part, Ilhan Omar played the victim. I am a Muslim. I am an immigrant. And interestingly, from Africa, is anyone surprised that I am a target? I, I would guess that you, having studied her, find this to be quite typical. Well, actually, in the days after my book came out back in February 2020, this was the exact kind of language in a fundraising appeal that she put out to her supporters attacking me for my book, a book which has over a thousand citations, chapter and verse for belts and suspenders, everything in it, heavily cited, precisely because I challenged her entire agenda, what she personifies, her embrace by not only the Democrat Party and its increasingly dominant progressive wing, but the media, which as is being, is as we're seeing today is continuing to run cover for her, precisely because on the merits, she cannot defend her rhetoric, her agenda, the raft of questions, bizarre questions that her personal conduct has raised in terms of several different types of fraud that she may well have engaged in. And as I argue in my book, also perhaps maybe the most disturbing aspect of her record, her raft of ties to Islamists, foreign and domestic, which should have prevented her from ever being seated on the House Foreign Affairs Committee in the first place. And that's an argument that I think is is really important to raise. That resolution ultimately leading to her ouster highlighted you know, her drawing of moral equivalence somehow between jihadists and the U.S. Army and the IDF, which is par for the course for her. Mm-hmm. It highlighted her anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist statements and her general anti-American, anti-Western kind of orientation, 
all of which should be disqualifying. You know, someone should not sit on the U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee and parrot the rhetoric of our worst enemies and effectively do their bidding, at least rhetorically there. But I argued in that book that she could never obtain a basic security clearance for a national security position in this country. Now, the voters essentially vetted her and gave her a de facto clearance by electing her to the House so that she could be seated on a committee like that. But I think a real story is, yes, her rhetoric is vile and odious. It has no place on the HFAC or in Congress itself. But she literally, in my view, posed a national security threat by being seated in that perch. And this is something that, of course, the media touched none of, and which was one of the reasons why I was so compelled to write that book in the first place, because I believe that Omar represented then when I wrote this book several years back and still today, not only the future, but the present of the intersectionalist, woke, progressive Democrat Party. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I went to look today at the Powerline blog, which is based in the Twin Cities. And Scott Johnson, who's done a bunch of reporting on her and her mysterious decision making, says, I first asked Omar for a comment on facts suggesting she might be married to her brother in August 2016 when she was running for a lowly state legislative office. This is the comment she gave me. There are people who do not want an East African Muslim woman elected to office and who will follow Donald Trump's playbook to prevent it. I mean, this is sort of the way that she's used, you know, as I'm sure even the title of your book suggests. She is uh, the face of DEI. She's sort of like, well, we're so excited and enraptured to have a black Muslim woman in the caucus. We want to put her on the covers of Rolling Stone. And then, the yeah, the, the, your everything you've raised about where she stands on the United States is almost irrelevant. It's absolutely right. She is the ultimate cry bully, I would argue, and someone who engages in projection. She claims that anyone who dares ask her any question of substance dares to challenge her on the merits of her rhetoric, her associations, on her positions, on any number of policies if they do not tow her favored perspective, she'll either ignore them and, the, and like-minded media, like the Star Tribune, will ignore them, or she'll attack them. And so she uses her identities, her so-called identities, as a body armor, as a shield, but also as a sword to attack. And so you have you know, the bigot par excellence in Congress who calls anyone who dares question her a bigot. If you dare question her about her bigotry, you're a bigot. <laughs> so it takes any scrutiny off the table and essentially says that if you dare challenge, dare criticize, dare not toe the line, you are the problem. You are prejudiced, you are bigoted, you have no place in American society. You know, it's funny. I, uh... She was really touted by the press in the last two years of Trump, elected in the midterms in 2018. Like I said, she was on the covers of the magazines. But, you know, once the Democrats were safely in charge of everything in 2020, the squad in general sort of vanished. Uh, you know, I, she says a lot of outrageous stuff. I noticed the other day Omar has not been fact-checked by PolitiFact since December of 2019. 
However, there are two new fact checks about Omar correcting wild things said about her on the Internet, which is kind of the pattern with the fact checkers. But I, it, 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 there is this whole idea that everything that these progressives have to say is somehow precious and, and cannot be attacked. I mean, it, it does line up with the news media that don't like, the, you know, who don't think the Democrats should ever be challenged is certainly the media should never be challenged. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, they have a vested interest in not highlighting you know, the, the myriad pieces of evidence to suggest that this is someone who should not be sitting in the U.S. Congress. Uh, but they do, to your point, hold her up as a rock star, you know, a symbolic figure of the likes of an AOC or I guess now Cori Bush and many others, mm-hmm. you know, they will never actually focus on what policies have they introduced, which is generally very few, or, or positions have they taken, because it hurts the brand. If Americans actually knew what these progressive figures stood for, or what's going on back in their districts as a consequence of the kinds of policies they have supported, Americans would reject it. So they can use these individuals in the most superficial, actually kind of bigoted sort of way. Let's hold some tokens representing certain identities that we believe will ingratiate us with voters, but not actually deal with the substance. They won't actually deal with the content of character. They only want you to focus on the skin color, on the identity. Of course, when those identities line up with uh, their favored policies. And you know the media scandal, around Ilhan Omar more broadly is a massive one. And to your point is Scott Johnson has written at length about this at Powerline. Scott Johnson was one of only a couple other reporters who actually did any digging whatsoever into Ilhan Omar's background. It was him, David Steinberg, and then another reporter at Alpha News, a local Minnesota publication. Mm-hmm. And, and that was pretty much it. And it, it was amazing, the coverage uh, that is covering for Omar that we saw. When the Star Tribune was forced to grapple with these questions around you know, immigration fraud and Ilhan Omar's multiple marriages and the nature of those marriages and the like, uh, they basically took what she presented them at face value. In one instance, she showed a, a piece of documentation to, I believe, a Star Tribune reporter and said he could not copy it, he could not reproduce it in any way. He could only look at a copy of it and then report on that. So the narrative has been controlled and stage managed from the start. And this is sort of a mini version of the Russiagate scandal, which writ large exposes the corruption of our national media. With Omar, there's the same corruption of the national media in not scrutinizing her, but also in this case, the local media protecting her in a similar fashion. And that's before we get to law enforcement essentially turning the other way on the substantial credible evidence out there suggesting marriage fraud, immigration fraud, tax fraud, and and perjury as well on top of all that. Yeah, I you know, I know the Star Tribune, I guess uh, maybe it was in 2020, uh, endorsed her opponent in the Democrat primary, but they, there's no question uh, you know, from my perusal from time to time, they've done a terrible job at at covering her. Obviously, for many years, the uh, obviously the Twin Cities were going to have Democrats in Congress, but they were two white guys for many, many years. Um, so, you know, I'm sure that the Democrats in the state of Minnesota 
just loved again black Muslim refugee um, and were willing to overlook everything else. Speaking of overlooking, Ben, uh, I, I had to do this on Twitter today. ADL and their new ADL tracker account had nothing on Ilhan Omar. Jonathan Greenblatt, the head of the ADL, is somehow tweeting about this freshman congressman from Missouri who apparently compared DirecTV dropping our friends at Newsmax to the Holocaust, but somehow, you know, where is the ADL? And this is where you uh, you have to go back to this whole idea of these these groups look like they're an adjunct of the Democratic Party of the Obama Biden team. Absolutely right, and the ADL particularly odious among these groups, and there are a lot of groups that deserve our scorn and opprobrium. Uh, but the ADL, of course you know, with the history of purportedly crusading against anti-Semites. And if anything, to the extent they cover Omar's ouster from the HFAC, I'm sure it will be, this was an Islamophobic attack on her, uh, just as the the kind of rhetoric that she put out and that like-minded squad members and the like put out yesterday, uh, that the ADL is nowhere to be found on this of course, speaks volumes. And I I think it's also worth noting, you know, one of the positives about the resolution that got her ousted was that it detailed chapter and verse her own words. And on top of that, Democrats, House Democrats, who themselves had chided her for those words uh, back in 2019, 2020. And let's not forget, and of course, the media in their writing about this has not really discussed it. Let's not forget that there was supposed to be a resolution censuring her back at the time of her her comments surfaced about it's all about the Benjamins and a whole slew of other quotes and tweets, by the way, uh, which I chronicle in my book, going far beyond some of the ones that have been, you know, most notorious and out there. She was supposed to be censured and then progressives intervened I believe the Congressional Black Caucus literally formed a circle around Ilhan Omar defending her as they were calling for effectively a watered down resolution. And ultimately, there was a watered down resolution against not Ilhan Omar and her specific Jew hatred comments, but rather against anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, as well as bigotry against minorities broadly. So they completely watered it down, would not target Omar, would not target her specific offending remarks. And so by dint of this resolution passing yesterday, I think a great wrong was righted in calling Omar out and specifically for her comments several years later now. Well, this was the real test for us when we were looking at the the networks when they covered it, uh, NBC in particular. I mean, they they actually would put the tweet, the offending tweets on air. It's like the first thing you have to do if you're going to be a respectable news organization is say, what is the controversy over? What did she say? Now, it was brief. It certainly wasn't doing the chapter and verse that was in the resolution you're talking about. But they at least gave some representation of what it was she actually said. Now, did you, uh, I don't know if you caught her on CNN, but we did discuss this on Spicer and Company the other day where she came on and said, I had no idea that Jews and money was a trope, you know? <laughs> I mean, 
it's just amazing. And I know that you tweeted like she is a liar. I mean, it, it, it was a really a remarkable performance. Well, and, you know, some of the history here is important. Some of these sorts of tweets, you know, about uh, Israel hypnotizing the world and the like, uh, you know, in her greatest hits of uh, Jew hatred and anti-Zionism had surfaced well before she was ever a member of U.S. Congress. And there was an intervention of sorts, as it was framed, by Jews in her community, uh, in her district, years back. You know, and essentially they walked out and she also uh, uh, participated in some kind of speaking engagement or a debate, I believe, at a synagogue in her district. And she essentially tried to allay the fears of the Jewish constituents in her community who are relatively sizable there to win them over so that she could get elected a couple of times. So she, there was, there were already massive red flags dating back years to her entry into twin cities politics. And it was well known that she had made comments directionally the same in terms of the Farrakhan esque sort of rhetoric emanating from her mouth. So the idea that, oh, I, I didn't know, but by the way, I'm, I'm sorry that you were offended, <laughs> which is sort of the way that she's framed this. And, you know, she's gone back on her remarks a couple of times, like, well, the remarks, you know, I'm sorry you were offended by them, not I'm sorry that I engaged in bigotry and the kinds of things that have been ascribed to Jews and used to justify pogroms against them generation after generation. That was not the explanation that she ever gave. So I, it reads as, totally disingenuous. And again, that sh that her her reflexive reaction is to say, I'm sorry that you're upset, but also you're a bigot for calling this out. And you're only attacking me unfairly because I'm a black immigrant Muslim woman. It's it's a tick that speaks volumes about the disingenuous nature of this figure. And again, why she has no place being a member of the HFC. Uh, let alone a member of Congress, for that matter. And then, of course, on CNN last night, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was on in the Anderson Cooper 360 show with John Berman, and she was doing this whole routine about Republicans causing what they call stochastic terrorism. Let's listen to that for a minute. I think both of us were in alignment on. Did you feel safe sitting there with him? I think it's uncomfortable. Um serving with people who engage in what many experts deem stochastic terrorism, which is the incitement of violence in a, uh, which is an incitement of violence using digital means and large platforms. So that individual themselves may not be the one that's wielding a weapon. Um, but I have had to ride, as, a, as has Representative Omar, I've had to, consistently had to ride in 20,000 pound armored vehicles in, um, in, you know, engaging in some of the most gruesome threats that you can imagine uh, that were incited by Republican members. Now, Ben, you gave a speech last March about the corporate media. And one of the things you said is our media smears those who disagree with it as not only deplorable and irredeemable, but terroristic. And here it is. Yeah. And the stochastic terrorism in particular is a novel manifestation of 
the idea on the campuses that have been embraced by not just the media, but our national security apparatus now, that speech is violence. And so those who engage in speech we disapprove of or that challenges our agenda may well be domestic terrorists and ought to be targeted as such. Now, stochastic terror is even more disturbing in some way because it's if you put out any rhetoric whatsoever that any crazed person cites and then engages in an attack, you have inspired their terrorism. And, you know, let's note that there was a bill that was put out, one of the first Democrat bills put out this session, uh, which tried to create a new hate crime classification, which basically said you could be a co-conspirator in a hate crime if you put out rhetoric you know, that can be interpreted as being bigoted. And then someone reads it on social media and engages in an attack. You could, Tucker Carlson could be a co-conspirator uh, for talking about, quote unquote, great replacement theory, that sort of thing. Um, so it's so chilling. And the media's role in creating this anti-speech, speech chilling paradigm, which says that if you hold the wrong views and you espouse them, you're an insurrectionist or you might inspire insurrectionists and therefore you're culpable and you ought to be targeted using every lever of power. Uh, the media's role in that is particularly sinister, obviously because the media wouldn't exist were it not for a, a belief in the imperative for speech, the imperative to question people about important subjects, to put forth a variety of views and let people assess you know, the veracity of them and which which views are stronger and ought to win the day. Uh, but the media instead, of course, oftentimes is the leading cheerleader of this silencing, censorship, chilling kind of regime that's being imposed now by all manner of sectors. And the media is oftentimes doing the petitioning of these sectors to do their bidding, like the social media companies, for example. Absolutely. Now, I guess that was a bill. Sheila Jackson Lee, was that the bill? That's right. And that's right. You can see where the news media would say, well, we're not going to cover this one because it's embarrassing to the Democrats, but also because, well, it's never going to go anywhere because, you know, the House Republicans aren't exactly going to take this up. But I think that this underlines where, yes, the Democrats are in the whole idea of hate speech and they're and all of them in the media. I mean, you can go back to the Oklahoma City bombing in 95. They wanted to connect it to Limbaugh. They wanted to connect it to Oliver North's radio show, or G. Gordon Liddy's radio show. Yeah, they're still playing this game all so many years later. It's it's kind of amazing. Now, the uh, this morning, the take on Morning Joe was... The, the hypocrisy is absolutely, absolutely crazy. And I will say, uh, uh, Congresswoman... Omar made a couple of uh, statements that were considered anti-Semitic. She apologized for them. I must say they, they, they certainly uh, were no worse, and I would say uh, far less egregious, than what we hear from Donald Trump, what we hear from uh, Donald Trump's uh, guests, dinner guests, what we've been hearing from the Republican Party over the over the past five, six years. These are the people that all ran around saying we need to call Trump's lies lies. And now they're saying what what she said was considered anti-Semitic. And then, of course, Scarborough went to Trump had Kanye West at his house. Naturally, the deflection is, um, you know, a, a tried and true tactic. But 
the reality is no one would no one would credibly make the case that she hasn't made anti-Semitic remarks, that she hasn't made anti-American remarks. I mean, as the resolution notes, how, how can someone sit on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and compare the U.S. military or the IDF to Hamas or the Taliban or any other jihadist group? And, and as the resolution notes, you know, part of this is conduct unbecoming of a member of Congress sitting on that committee. The other part of it is that that committee is viewed as a voice of Congress on matters of national security and foreign policy. So on those bases, I think it's pretty clear that would disqualify Ilhan Omar. But again, to even strengthen that argument, I would go to the position of this is someone who should have never been able to look at classified materials of the most sensitive kinds that someone on this committee would have to grapple with and interpret and engage with precisely because if you look to her background, there are so many compromising red flags about her associations, her finances to an extent, and then her misconduct and ethical lapses and potentially criminal violations of very grave kinds. When you look at, and, and again, and the media never touches on any of this, but the reality is if you look at an SF-86, a standard national security background check questionnaire for positions in the federal government, the, the the whole background check is about figuring out where are you potentially weak, compromised, where are things in your background that can be leveraged against you by a foreign adversary. And in the case of Ilhan Omar, when it talk when it comes to questions of character, conduct, devo devotion to country and the like, there's just red flags everywhere. So it's astounding that she could have been there in the first place. Obviously, you know, the arguments are totally disingenuous. We're talking about hypocrisy, Democrats did this to Republicans. They stripped Republicans from committees for myriad reasons in the past. Not only that, Democrats also created a January 6th committee, arguably in violation of rules, mm -hmm. where they actually went out and subpoenaed Republican colleagues and harassed them with those subpoenas. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the notion of the hypocrisy and the like. And then to Ilhan Omar's argument and her supporters' arguments of, oh, this is about targeting a black Muslim immigrant woman. Well, last I checked, Eric Swalwell isn't a black immigrant Muslim <laughs> woman, uh, nor is Adam Schiff for that matter. And by the way, they probably engaged in conduct far more dangerous and disastrous than that of the Republicans who were stripped of their committee assignments as well. All arguments that the media won't touch and it's worth noting a hat tip to David Harsani, who at The Federalist did a good piece today on the hypocrisy and, and the media coverage or lack thereof uh, of Ilhan Omar contrasted with the coverage of the stripping of the assignments of Paul Gosart and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, excellent. I have not read that yet, but I enjoy what David has to say. I Let me just wrap with this thought, and that is that it seems to me the news media are missing this point that Kevin McCarthy keeps making which is we're not removing them from all committees. We're removing them from sensitive committees. And obviously, yes, what Nancy Pelosi and company did was to remove them from all committees. You know, they couldn't be on science and space, even though they thought they were experts on space lasers. Uh, you know, they removed them from all committees. This, they're being much more specific in saying, there's just these committees that we're not going to allow you to be on. 
Yeah, and look, I might argue that they should be stripped of all their committee assignments, <laughs> uh, and, and particularly with respect to Adam Schiff, I would say, because Adam Schiff clearly, and, and there's a media tie into this, clearly seemed to engage in First Amendment violations in getting my colleague at Real Clear Investigations, Paul Sperry, mm -hmm. bounced from Twitter. Mm -hmm. He abused his position in myriad other ways, sitting atop the House Intelligence Committee in terms of his leaking, his lying, and his exploitation, essentially, of that perch that he held for political gain, made a mockery of that committee, uh, and, and engaged in a, just a whole slew of acts that were beyond deplorable. Obviously, when it comes to Eric Swallow, co compromised, to put it mildly, by a Chinese spy, I think should get you booted off of that committee as well. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, it's basically, if Republicans do it, it's destroying the integrity of institutions and it's unprecedented behavior that imperils our democracy. When Democrats do it, they're doing God's work. It's just righteous and virtuous. And that is the, that is the standard that the media operates by. But the reality is, even though there were many Republicans who were loath to talk about, you know, the tit for tat argument and they didn't, they said, you know, we shouldn't engage in it, et cetera. And that probably is part of the point of having these more narrowly tailored assignment stripping exercises mm -hmm. that we're seeing here. The reality is Democrats have already done this. The precedent has already been set. And in a two party system, if one party is willing to engage in a whole raft of tactics and the other party is only willing to fight back with one arm uh, or on a watered down basis, you don't really have a balanced two-party system. Uh, obviously, <laughs> the, the media would never cover it that way. They'd never say, why don't Republicans act the same way Democrats do? Uh, but I think the American people do increasingly question why that's the case. And I think that has caused a shift within the party such that you would have leadership that would actually engage in stripping Democrats from these committees, just as Democrats had done. Well, and this is, you know, you they could have been intimidated by winning such a narrow majority. And of course, the media thinks because it's a narrow majority, that they should be weakened. But of course, Nancy Pelosi did not have a great majority the last two years, and they never suggested that was a, a, a break on her in any way. This is, to me, what's most interesting about someone like Schiff is that you just know that he's been, since he's a massive leaker, that what that then creates through his anonymous leaking is an army of media people who will rush to defend him without anybody ever quite figuring out one of the reasons they're all going to come to defend him is because that's a that's not a tit for tat that's a back scratch back scratch yeah he he's a he's a key source for them they help bolster his national image they never call him on you know i have evidence of russian collusion and you just have to wait to find out what it is <laughs> um and 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 it also the same goes for of course the very intelligence apparatus that he was kind of co-opted by or that he worked hand in hand with and that we've seen with the myriad russiagate revolutions or uh, revelations over the last several years of Clearly, the media was being fed by sources who were feeding it a line the media liked in the first place. And there was even circularity up to and including in the FISA court and the fraud being twisted on it as well. So the worst part, perhaps, of what has become 
of our media is that it is now part and parcel of this entire political establishment plus national security and law enforcement apparatus vehicle to drive their favored policies and punish their opponents. And that's not just a dereliction of duty by the media. That's the media essentially becoming an asset of the ruling establishment, the very ruling establishment that it is supposed to scrutinize to the nth degree. Instead, it does the diametrically opposite. Well, this is why I always say the Washington Post headline should be democracy dies in anonymous sourcing. Um, and of course, to me, whenever they they shame the phrase the deep state, um, to me, the first deep state are all these sources inside the government or people who are now outside of the government trying to run the government, you know, through anonymous sourcing in the papers um, or and, and in cable news. Well, Ben, it's been a pleasure to have you on. And uh, thank you for spending time with us today. And remember, if you want to find out what's going on on Media Bias, you come to Newsbusters once, twice, 24 times a day. Thanks for listening.